that whole structure will be a complete coral ball or dome. Mm. These are not too big. They're like 1.5 meter wide, uh, maybe 60 centimeter high, very movable. A diver can pick them up and place them somewhere. And then once they're overgrown, they become part of the coral reef. The good thing also is about it, the inside remains hollow. And that's the perfect place where fish and shrimps or cuttlefish or octopus can then be uh, lay their eggs, be safe from bigger predators. Stick Your Neck Out, the weekly podcast of the Giraffe Heroes Foundation. Because of this episode, I've been thinking a lot about the Austrian poet Rainer Maria Rilke. Because this episode is about the ocean. And me, myself, as Rilke once said, when anxious and easy and bad thoughts come, I go to the sea and the sea drowns them out with its great white sounds, cleanses me with its noise and imposes a rhythm upon everything in me that is bewildered and confused. Today I'm talking to giraffe hero Aki Alaguli. In his former life, he was working for IBM and Bank Sarasin, as well as managing a bar, having a comfortable lifestyle with, I quote him, all the toys and dependencies that come along when being a forerunner for the capitalistic system. This lifestyle, however, led to a burnout where his inner voice asked for a drastic change in 2008. Welcome, Aki, to Stick Your Neck Out. Hello. Nice to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Aki, can you tell us a bit more about this process? How was your life before 2008 and how did you get to the point to change your life so drastically? What kind of decisions did you take? Well, I would lie if I would say that I didn't enjoy that certain lifestyle at the time. But as with anything, things change. And obviously the, uh, the demanding side of my work increased and it was not fulfilling at all. It was more like I had to deliver and the delivering part was usually just something related to numbers or profits or, you know, it was a lifestyle that is very repetitive and it always was the same. And after a while that um, you start thinking about it. Not that I have, you have much time to think about it anyway, um, because when you are completely inside the system, the system doesn't allow you to have much space to critical question who you are, what you are, what you're doing, where you're going. Does this make sense? Could there be an alternative? Could there be something that is, you know, maybe less time intense or, or labor intense? Um, so, you know, this process never really came. And the process of change is something that we all should embrace at a, at some certain point and not be afraid of. Um, you know, everybody is afraid of everything nowadays anyway. But change doesn't necessarily mean that it's something that it's bad, you know. Even though you go into into a direction that you might not know, you might go into somewhere that is unknown to you at the, at the point. But isn't that what life is all about? I, you know, I lost touch with my inner self. I lost touch with nature. So the, the, the process of change, because it was so extreme, that lifestyle had to be dictated from the outside. And then it was painful. So change, nevertheless, will come in your life. Um, so you might as well just embrace it. 
uh, I then went on and, and said, I need to change. I, I left my job. I left my jobs, basically, and I started to travel. And that's when the real process of change then got initiated. Yeah, but it needs a lot of courage to do so. I mean, to say, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. I have to do something new. Where do you get this from? <laughs> you know, the ironic thing about this was because, you know, when you, when you work in a position that you have, where you have a decent, a good income, the ironic conviction of myself that I shouldn't be afraid to do that step into the unknown was that if it doesn't work out, I can always go back to the bank, you know, because the bank is like the, the security safe haven. You work at the bank, especially in Switzerland, you work at the bank, you're safe, you're, you're good, you, you made it, uh, you don't have to worry about it. It's not like that anymore nowadays. Um, maybe it was 25 years ago, but nowadays it's not like that anymore. So I, I convinced myself to leave the bank. I was convinced that if, if I don't make it, if I, if, if I end up completely broke, I can always go back and find a new job at the bank. But you know, the point was, if you make that decision to leave the bank and you go out there and you start traveling and you feel the nature and you feel how it is to, to, to be liberated from, from these chains, you're not going to go back anymore. You just don't. <laughs> yeah, and that's what happened. Yeah. I, I, yeah, <laughs> After, sorry. Yeah, sorry. After this life-changing uh, experience, you started focusing on your engagement on, on marine protection initiative. You got the experience acknowledged until you found it coralife.org a Swiss-based environmental organization passionate for the ocean operating worldwide to help protect, manage and restore coastal ecosystems in support of the International Year of the Reef if I'm not wrong Coralife started a new coral propagation project of the coastal waters of Frigate Seychelles how exactly was the organization Coralife born and what do you exactly do? Well, there's a few years in between leaving the bank and founding my own organization. Um, obviously, after leaving uh, the bank and that lifestyle, I did a lot of traveling. Just, you know, feel, feel the other extreme, you know, being stuck in one place and, you know, just compensate for that. I did that for a few years, getting to a point where I realized that this is also a privilege that we have being born in the West, Western world. Uh, Europe in this case, we can always go back home, you know, and we go, we go, we go to Africa, we go to, we go to India and we, we, you know, we, we take pictures of poverty and we see that and it's like, oh, this is terrible. We should do something about this. And then, you know, two weeks later, you're, you're on a plane flying to Malaysia and you, you go to a shopping mall in KL and, and, you know, that's not, that's not. So I realized that I needed some purpose in the traveling. So What I did after that, I started to volunteer. I volunteered uh, first in, with an uh, NGO in Madagascar called Reef Doctor. That was my first great experience, and I have still very, very good uh, relations with them. In fact, we're going to go uh, have our first joint project together in January uh, next year. Really looking forward to that. After that, I did um, my master's degree in Costa Rica. I did uh, sustainable natural resource management, um, which inspired me to do more uh, work together with the corals. And then I started to volunteer again for an NGO in the Philippines. I stayed there for two years, basically. After those two years, I realized I needed to do this on my own. You know, just working for somebody else, 
that may not share the same uh, values or inspirations or, or goals with you, I needed to do this on my own. So that was the point where I left that organization at the time. Uh, right away, I started and founded uh, Coralife.org. Then, you know, my first project uh, was launched, a very small one uh, in Greece, actually. Uh, ironically, that's where I am at the moment. And this led to another one in Jamaica. Um, then I was able to initiate an, another one in the Philippines. And that in the Philippines then got a little bit bigger as well, led to further projects in the Seychelles, in the Maldives, in Kenya, eventually, and a few more to come. The one in the Seychelles is a very prestigious one in cooperation with Blampa, which is a Swiss uh, watchmaker. And they have a foundation, the Blampa Ocean Commitment, uh, who is, you know, partially funding or completely funding environmental project related to marine protection and mar marine conservation, and in this case, marine restoration. Yeah, that's basically what I do. I, Like I said, I administrative stuff, a lot of the things. Um, I have a few um, folks that help me out uh, with a lot of things, like the volunteer work, organizing this, um, everything that has to do with scientific stuff. I have somebody who helps me out there. Myself, I, I basically, I, I want to be involved in the work itself all time. I don't want to become somebody who's just sitting behind a computer, organizing uh, projects, preparing logistics and raising funds. I want to be there, out there, in, in, in the ocean, attaching corals to structures, making sure that the corals that are so needed for the ocean as a base baseline for food, baseline for security, baseline for protection, uh, diversity and tourism, all that, that they're, you know, come back where they should be and that are protected where they're still there. For this project in the Seychelles, 800 storm-derived coral fragments, appearingly named corals of opportunity, were transplanted onto eight artificial structures mm -hmm. at depth of uh, between five and seven meters. How does the coral healing process works, really? Okay, that's a very good question. There are different techniques out there, obviously. What they all have in common somehow is if we do coral restoration in areas that are heavily, heavily damaged, meaning that, let's say, there was a storm that wiped out the complete coral reef or there was an extreme bleaching event, meaning that all the corals died and maybe over the years they got eroded and... Uh, what the outcome is of these extreme weather events is that usually what you find on the ocean ground is a rubble field. These are small little white pieces of coral, the leftover of, of the coral structure, and they're loose. So you have to imagine a flat ocean floor with loose, small calcium pieces of co dead coral. Mm. And nothing can grow on that for at least at least one or two generations, generations of, of us, so like 25 to, let's say, 25 to, to 30 years. What can initiate the healing process is that you place three-dimensional structures that are very stable, so corals can actually grow or overgrow these structures. Now, 
the process is always that is always the same that all the techniques have in common then you know they differ because you know maybe different forms of budget are are available or or not available in most cases um whatever material that you find locally can be used the way we do it is we have these structures made out of rebar that's pure steel and they look like small little domes or like pyramids that that the top is cut off and what we do is we use these corals of opportunity meaning like you know they got from a storm they got broken off and they lay in the sand so we take them we 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 make smaller pieces out of it and these small pieces these fragments coral fragments we attach on these structures and then we put the whole structure on electricity meaning we have an electrolysis it's called the mineral accretion technology from an anode that will do send electrons to the structure and with the chemical process on the structure the pH level becomes higher so it, the environment is more alkaline which is in favor of growth of corals with that is also a deposition of limestone calcium carbonate this means the building material for the corals is right there so they don't necessarily need to do all that by themselves which leads to faster growth so the corals grow three to five times faster um, they're more resilient in, in times of stress and they have a build-up against uh, future extreme weather events so that's basically it okay so you you put these domes this, this kind of iron structure inside mm-hmm. you you let them grow and this iron stuff stays stays in the water or you can just take it out no, no, it has to say in the water. The the structure itself initially is artificial, yes, but it become it will become completely overgrown with limestone, with calcium carbonate. Hence, it's not going to rust. It's actually the reverse. The reverse process is happening. As soon as you put the structure on electricity, that top layer of rust will completely disappear, and you have a bare steel in the water. Then it slowly becomes overgrown with limestone, and the coral itself overgrows the structure itself as well. So that whole structure will be a complete coral ball or dome. Mm. These are not too big. They're like 1.5 meter wide, uh, maybe 60 centimeter high, very movable. A diver can pick them up and place them somewhere uh, when they're new. And then once they're overgrown, they become part of the coral reef. The good thing also is about it, the inside remains hollow. And that's the perfect place where fish and shrimps or cuttlefish or octopus can then be, uh, lay their eggs, be safe from bigger predators, you know, multiply as much as they can and with that with the coral reef coming back also the fish stock comes back so that's the whole idea how long does the healing process last are we talking about years months days Wow, it would be beautiful if we could do that in, in a few months. Imagine, imagine the, the, one of the fastest growing coral species is, is one of the Acroporas and they grow maybe let's say 15 centimeters a year um, there's mm-hmm. others, you know, the very slow-growing corals. They they don't they don't go beyond the centimeter a year. So you know these coral reefs they have been growing for you know thousands, if not millions. I mean millions of years. They are very very old, very very old. It takes a long time. You know how it took millions of years to to create the Great Barrier Reef or the reef around uh, New Caledonia or the Mesoamerican uh, Reef. 
um, it took took so so much time. The reverse process, destruction, can be done in seconds, obviously. So, if we would plant out a coral fragment um, just like that in that area, it would probably take at least twenty-five to fifty years to to somewhat restore the reef again. Without technology, we can do that three to five times faster. So I would say within five years, we can have a decent result and saying like, hey, there was nothing here before because it was completely destroyed. But now we have these, you know, decentralized little domes or microcosmos of corals with fish around it. And that then itself can be left by itself because, you know, a storm will come, a trigger fish or a parrot fish will, will bite on the corals, the corals fall down, the current takes it to another place, they somehow get stuck and they naturally start to grow itself. So to be straightforward and to be very, very honest, if I would call myself somebody who restores corals, I would not really be very honest. The only thing I do is I initiate the healing process. I jumpstart that process and I give nature a helping hand so at some point it can heal itself and we can reduce the time of, of healing by jump-starting that process. Okay, this project in the Seychelles reefs, you are using the method of mineral accretion. We have been talking about that a lot, but there is another method you can use, and I think you did it also before, the nursery method. What is this about and which one is better? So the nursery is not a different method of coral restoration. The nursery is just a different approach. And the approach is needed when you start to think about larger scale of restoration. To be honest, the project in the Seychelles is, has a decent size, but is not very big. So we place the structures there and we attach the coral fragments right onto the structures. Now, the project that we have in the Maldives, for example, the future outcome of that will be a restoration of two hectares, that is 20,000 square meters, which is quite a large area for, for coral restoration. It has never really been done before, but we, that's what we're aiming at. We want to do large-scale coral restoration. Now, imagine 20,000 square meters, and each of these mini-domes covers 10 square meters. So you can do the math. We need a lot of these structures. We need about 2,000 of these structures. And each of these structures needs about 30 fragments. Hence, 2,000 times 30, that creates 60,000 fragments. It's very difficult to have 60,000 fragments right on the spot. You didn't want to have you know, you don't want to go out into the natural reef that is already under pressure and, and break off 60,000 fragments. Yeah. So what you do is you create a nursery. It's basically like a little garden underwater. And you have also structures. In this case, they're just table structures. And you use the fragments that you found and you attach it there. You let it grow, let's say six to 12 months. And once they have a decent size, you can harvest the, the corals, you chop them off, you chop them off, okay. each, each fragment again, mm -hmm. and then you have a harvest of maybe three, four, five thousand fragments. And these fragments you outplant at the restoration site, and then you have to wait for the next phase, and then you go back to the nursery, you harvest coral fragments again, you outplant them at their final destination, 
and so on and so forth. So a nursery is, is basically just a stock of, of corals that you can use to outplant when you do the restoration itself. The mineral accretion technology, in both cases, we use it at, at every, with every structure. Um, we have the mineral accretion technology that's to support with electricity in the nursery, as well as the final destination where the restoration actually happens. How do you manage to cover the cost for this, I imagine, quite expensive restoration and protection of the corals? Well, there's, there's several streams of income or inflow, so to speak, uh, because income we don't really have at the moment. We, we have donations. People directly donate to our cause. The other way is through the projects. These projects sometimes are of interest for the private sector. For example, a hotel uh, is interested to do a coral restoration, let's say as a guest experience, for example, or they want to have a house reef that is, you know, good for, for snorkelers, uh, but it's not there because, you know, maybe the coral reef has been destroyed while the hotel was built or there was a bleaching event or whatsoever. And then it's, you know, then it's basically just a, a job. We, we work f for, for a hotel or a private financer. And the money that then comes into the NGO obviously stays in the NGO. And that money then can be used, for example, to initiate small-scale uh, small or grassroots uh, projects. Um, I'm thinking about for example, like a, a fishing community in the Philippines, then, you know, they want to do something, then maybe, you know, the costs are not extremely high there. Maybe we can then sponsor 5,000 uh, euros for, for a project like that. The, the money stays within the organization and then obviously flows back into, into the ocean again. Yeah. What is the biggest challenge you have uh, or you are, you are confronting because of the climate change? Well, the heating up of the ocean, uh, it's, it's not really a, a very good thing for, for the corals. Um, you know, the biggest threat is, is basically, or, or the biggest question that we have to ask ourselves is, are the corals able to adapt at the same speed or at the higher speed to get used to the higher temperatures that the oceans are, are getting? You know, the, the El Nino effect, um, which is like something that in the past, and let's say it's 15 to 20 years, happened every five to seven years. Uh, it's, yep. it's a complete reversal of, of um, wind direction, um, current direction. Um, there's hot water for a while. And it brought destruction. And, but destruction also led to adaptation of corals, for example. Corals, like every seven years, they got challenged with a heat wave and they, like, they had to genetically adapt and their offspring was a stronger coral reef than it was before. So that was a good thing. But these, these events are becoming normal. They, these events are not like every seven to ten years anymore. They are almost every year. There is a term, <laughs> I recently discovered it by talking to, uh, to scientists. They said, you know, it's bleaching season. We never talked about a bleaching season. A bleaching season is, is something like, it can't be seasonal. Obviously, there are regions in the world where once a year, the water becomes so warm, and I, I talk about, you know, average temperature beyond 30 degrees, and everything that's beyond 30 degrees basically is, is fatal for, for corals. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the water stays warm 
uh, on average uh, 31, 32 degrees over the course of three months. The corals die, they bleach, and so on and so forth. And if that happens every year, corals have a hard time to adapt because coral spawning, and I'm putting out another term, once a year, sometimes twice if the conditions are good, but once a year, corals do sexual reproduction, meaning they eject sperm and eggs, they create larvae, and these larvae then are taken by the current to other places, not too far, they settle down, and they start a new coral. And out of that come, becomes a new coral colony. And that's just once a year. But if once a year we have the bleaching event, the corals are stressed, there's not going to be any spawning, there's no sexual reproduction, there can't be any offspring that are getting used to extreme water conditions or weather conditions. So that's really, really the biggest challenge that the corals at the moment face. Again, the what we do with our work, we initiate the healing process by, by placing these structures, attaching the corals, boost them with the electricity so, you know, they can, they can have a, a head start and even go, fight through um, a, a harsh, a stressful time like hot water and hopefully come up with offspring that are stronger than the parents and, and, and meaning that, that uh, you know, they can adapt and in the near future there will be still, uh, obviously in the long future as well, hopefully there will still be coral reefs that, that we can enjoy from. Mm. We have been talking a lot about corals, but uh, why are corals reefs so important? And, and I think you mentioned it before, but maybe there are all the reasons why are they dying? You have to imagine the, the coral reefs, they cover, I think it's 0.02% of the ocean itself, but yet they host 25% of all the biodiversity in the ocean. That number itself is just staggering and the importance of it speaks for itself. The main, the main importance, food security, because if you don't have corals, there will be no fish. If you don't have fish, people will be hungry. And especially in developing countries, uh, fish directly from the ocean is an important source of, of protein in people's diet. You know, people that live with one or two dollars a day, they have nowhere else to go than to the ocean and get, get a fish out. You yeah. know, they, yeah. everybody wants to eat and obviously their family too. We have coastal protection, a healthy coral reef, a little bit outside of a shore, picks up over 90% of uh, surge and wave energy. So if you have a storm, if you have just a stronger current and with the heating of the ocean, the, the currents will become stronger and faster. Mm. Also, the levels of, of, of oceans rising, that means that the energy that goes directly to, a, to the shore will you know, destroy complete shorelines. So a healthy coral reef is protecting shorelines. Hence, human lives and properties like hotel chains and beaches, and um, which leads to the next point, tourism. Tourism, it's a huge, huge part of the tourism industry. And not just snorkeling and diving, but also, you know, a healthy beach is because there's a healthy coral reef out there. And people go places where there's healthy reef because of, you know, the diversity. Diversity is the next point. It's important to have a, a high diversity in the ocean because that strengthens the survival rates. And there's a lot of 
you know, medical uh, research going on, like AIDS and cancer research, a lot of the resources that are used come from coral on coral reefs that are now being used to research in, in, in finding cures for, for cancer and AIDS. Yeah, that's that's basically that these are the main main reasons. So people like scientists put that in numbers because that's always important to put it in numbers. It's basically the coral reef, the 0.02% that cover the ocean, produce a annual uh, value of 30 billion US dollars. Whoa. And it's a very high number. The problem is it's not something that you directly get. It's not that you, and that makes me sad and mad at, at points, um, because if somebody comes up with an idea, you know, just a new app that will be able to, I don't know, deliver something to somewhere and you just have to do click one time, they will find sponsors and donors and, and uh, investors in the millions. If you want to protect something that is annually worth 30 billion US dollars, nobody will, will, will write you that check because nobody gets a direct uh, return on investment from it. But mm. the costs that would occur if you take away the environmental services done by coral reefs are so high that it would make sense to protect these coral reefs. If you take away a healthy coral reef that protects the shoreline, let's say, that's always been given. So now if all of a sudden the coral reef is not there anymore, the shoreline gets destroyed, hotels will be destroyed, tourism industry collapses, you have losses in the billions for a country. That could lead to a country having major issues and they need to go to the World Bank and get a loan to survive and so on and so forth. But, you know, it, would, it doesn't take that much to, to protect the coral reef. But, you know, as humans, we are very short-sighted. We don't think far ahead. Um, so that's the biggest challenge, I would say. Mm. Going back to your NGO, Coral Life, you mentioned once that uh, the next challenge you are facing is to remain an NGO that does not become just another player in the field of profits for non-profits. Can you explain a bit more about this problem and describe what solutions do you have in mind to approach and avoid this situation? Another good question. <laughs> I mean, personally, that's a personal belief. I think there's a lot of philosophers out there that share the same idea. Um, I, I, what I don't want is I don't want to become a huge player. They, they actually have a name, you know, they're called the bingos, the, B, the big NGOs, yeah. the bingos. And when I look at them, they're almost, and I don't want to be dropping names or anything, they almost look to me like big corporations where obviously they have a very good marketing department where they say, hey, you give us money, we'll make sure that the last tiger in the world will be saved, the last uh, whale will be saved. We make sure you just continue to do your work, um, make, make sure that you donate us a lot of money. And they raise a lot of money, they, they, they create awareness, yes, but that money, does it actually get to protect what we need to yeah. be protected? I don't want to get there. I don't want to be one of these large, large uh, NGOs that just has a huge fundraising department and where the CEO of that NGO doesn't really get involved with the work on the, on, in the field or on the ground. Yep. That's why I mentioned that before. I always want to be yep. right there in the spot attaching corals. I want to have that you know, opportunity and, and, and privilege to do so. 
obviously, I understand that as a small NGO, you're not being taken serious too much. So what I, I need to what I need to do is I need to talk the talk and also walk the walk. I need to make sure that if I get the opportunity to talk to large donors, that they understand that even if we're small, we still have, first of all, very big partners that we work with, and we can pull off large-scale core restoration. And that is something that is not really, really being done at the moment. Um, everybody claims that they know how to do it, but you know nobody have really has done it. Nobody has done hectares of core restoration or my gosh, um, square kilometers, you know, that's, that's my goal. That's my, my future vision. I want to be able to say in five years, Max, that we have the logistical um, setup to restore corals or start the healing process of, of square kilometers of, of, of coral reef. And we'll make sure that the survival rate is 90% and, and not just 10%. And so the effort is basically worthless. These are the things that uh, I need to focus on. Obviously, my feet stay on the ground and I don't want to become a, one of these big players that are in the field. And I'm pretty sure and confident that I will stay true to myself and, and, and don't get distracted. Yeah, that's an important thing. I mean, it's great you have so much impact and Coral Life actually managed to make a difference. So if somebody wants to join, what resources do you need or what skills should I bring along to join hands? On our website, you can um, create a profile, and that's always very, very welcomed. So people who really want to be active in the field, they have to go through a set of questionnaires. Obviously, if you are from the field, let's say you're studying marine biology or something similar, that's a plus. If you have um, experience in diving, um, let's say you have more than 50 dives, um, you've dived different places in the world, and you know, you're know you a good diver uh, underwater, you, have, you feel comfortable, that's great. That definitely is, is a plus as well. So, you know, we have this pool of, of volunteers and, and when we have new projects and we need volunteers to help us out, let's say, you know, attaching corals, placing structures, laying the cables and so on and so forth, maintaining the, the nursery, cleaning the corals and so on and so forth, we reach out to them and we make sure they can come and work with us. It's a great experience. Unlike other NGOs, we don't make money out of that. Um, I remember when I was a volunteer, I had the um, opportunity to to become a volunteer, uh, and and doing research was was very frustrating because all these positions where you can volunteer, they wanted to have money, and and you had to pay like enormous sums of money to to become a volunteer, and that really really got on my nerves. So, if you volunteer with us, the only thing that we kind of expect from you is uh, getting there, and we'll take care of the rest food and housing and, and insurance and, and, you know, the diving and, and everything will take care of that. So you can have a great experience volunteering and doing actually something that, that's important for nature. That's one way to be part of us and, and to help us out. The other possibility obviously is, and I don't like to do that so much, but it's, it's just part of it, is be a donor, be a, a sponsor. And obviously you can donate money, uh, you can sponsor a reef, you can sponsor a reef structure, you can uh, sponsor, you know, in whatever form you want to um, donate uh, to us. The money that we 
receive from donors, like, you know, somebody says, hey, I'll give you 50 bucks, 90% of that will end up directly in the ocean for the corals. We don't use that money for, let's say, overhead costs or um, salaries or marketing brochures. No, that money is going straight to the projects. The other costs, like the overhead costs to run our NGO, like the, you know, the, the servers and, and all these things, that we cover with, with different sources of income. Mm. Okay. Why, do you choose, why do you choose the oceans? It's the source. It's the, you know, Sir, Sylvia Earle, um, uh, she's one of the greatest ocean advocates in the world. She said, no blue, no green. And that means if you, if you, have, if, if you don't take care of the ocean the land will suffer. So you, the ocean is the most important body that will, will, will compensate for any changes in climate. We have a stable climate because we have the ocean. And the ocean is, is not stable at the moment because we are doing this chemical experiment with the ocean by burning fossil fuels and pumping CO2 and methane gas into the atmosphere for a hundred years now. And carbon dioxide is a carrier of heat because we burn fossil fuels, you know, cars, oil for, for electricity, the cows that are, you know, being produced to, for the meat industry. All this creates carbon dioxide and that's always related to heat. And we've been pumping heat into the atmosphere and the ocean now are, you know, been, been trying to compensate and they've been doing that, you know, they've been, but that's, we're getting to a point where this is oversaturated. So if the ocean gets to a better state, we then can have a more stable climate on land as well. We don't have many, as many tornadoes anymore. You know, changes in temperature won't drop from one to the other within a few hours anymore. And we all can be much, much more relaxed and look into a brighter future. Any recommendation for people who find themselves in a situation similar you encountered yourself in 2008, suffered in a burnout or about to do so, feeling they are just working at the wrong place, in the wrong direction, but don't see a way out or don't know how to find the courage to do so or don't want to. Maybe having several people around who depend on them and they just don't get to quit. I mean, yes, that's, I mean, it's a very difficult situation. I, I, I don't know if I would have chosen to do the same, if I would have had a family and, and, um, and, and, and children or, or anything alike. The only thing that I had was, you know, financial ties. You know, I had my, where I lived, my car, my, you know, and financial ties are easily to overcome. You can pay off the debt if you want. You can reduce your spending. All you need is a little bit of discipline. You, you need to put yourself together a plan that you want to change something because I'm sure the majority of the people who are going through the motions like every day to the same uh, work over and over again, they know deep down somewhere that they're not happy and they would like to change something, but they feel disempowered. You know, they don't feel like oh, they can do that. So the discipline and just believe in yourself, believe in your abilities. You do have skills. And imagine if you have all the time and you wouldn't have to worry about the money, what would you do? What would you, your talents be? What would inspire you to do something else? Just start that process by imagining and, and, and 
inspire yourself read maybe read books from from people who did that you know it can be spiritual leaders and 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 people who who left the system um and and that can be inspiring because there's always there's always another way there's always another way um you just have to be in touch with yourself you have to be very sensitive to 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 signs that you receive from life you know if you send out a wish into the universe that it that it is truly truly honest and comes from your heart the universe will respond to you with signs and directions and guidance and will lead you to another um, path that is actually the real path that you're supposed to take. Um, now we're getting really philosophical here and, and spiritual, but that it's parallel. You know, these things, these things are necessary. These things are important. And, and if we just continue to feed the monster and, you know, the monster in this case being the system that takes so much from us, that takes so much from nature and doesn't give back anything, just takes and takes and takes, that actually led to the situation that we that we are in at the moment. That the the destruction of nature is what happened because the system took and took and took and doesn't give back. So we need to we need to stop feeding the the, the system. We need to reduce our footprint of carbon dioxide. We need to stop just constantly consume and consume and consume and and yeah, that's that's not good. It's not good. It's not healthy. It's not healthy at all. So we need to stop doing that. Aki, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for giving me the possibility to speak. Of course. The American marine biologist, explorer, author, and lecturer, Sylvia Earle, she talked about her before, asked herself once, why is that scuba divers and surfers are some of the strongest advocates of the ocean conservation? And she answered, because they've spent time in and around the ocean, and they've personally seen the beauty the fragility, and even the degradation of our planet's blue herd. Girafiro Aki Alagoli has seen the beauty and the degradation and he has done something against it. He took his neck out and did and is still doing something. If you want to support his work, go to coralife.org and support them in any form you can. This was Stick Your Neck Out, the podcast to restore your faith in humanity. I am Jean-Pierre Aguiar Durañona. We are proud to share every week inspirational stories from remarkable individuals. Each giraffe's story is unique, with the underlying theme of overcoming challenges present in all. Take a look at each individual experience, and although each person is different, they all have one thing in common, heroism. We want to hear your stories too. If you'd like to tell us about your frontline hero, visit us at giraffe-heroes.eu Dear listeners, our nature is at risk through exploitation and climate change. Therefore, the Giraffe Heroes Foundation is fighting for climate adaptation and the regeneration of a healthy environment. We start at community level and with practical skills, naturalizing villages with trees and plants, reinvigorating the bees, teaching the crafts and the arts necessary in our times. With your help, we can give this work a greater impact and make it the start of the paradigm change. We are inviting you to come on board, be part of this struggle of the common goal, to keep the planet a human affair. If you want to be part of it, go please to wemakeit.com, look for our project Climate Adaptation, the Peace and Tree Initiative, and have a look at the great rewards you can get while supporting us.
subscribe the podcast so you don't have to look out for us. We'll be coming to you. Join us also on our social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Join us again next week.